Good afternoon, Servants Church. On the 6th of July, right here in this building, Hillcrest, we're going to start our summer of prayer. And we're going to be meeting on Tuesday evenings uh, from 7.30 till about 9 as the Lord leads. And just have a time of in-person and on Zoom prayer. Seeking the Lord for, um, for just for Him because He's good, but also uh, pouring out our hearts to Him. And, and wanting to kind of spiritually reboot after a really rough 15 months to, to make sure that we're, as we move forward, we're moving forward as the Lord leads and in uh, dependence of, of, of Him. So keep those things in mind. Now... Uh, Luke chapter 11, we're going to look at Luke eleven thirty-seven 37, all the way through Luke 12, verse 3, and I want to read Luke 12, verse 1, and then I want to pray, and then we'll get into it together. Luke 12, verse 1 says this, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And Father, we pray that you would help us because it's hard to hear about this. It's hard for us to think about ways that we might be still playing the hypocrite. But Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to warn us of this, of, of the damage that can be done when we walk in hypocrisy. And so, Lord, we're looking to you not only to expose, but to deliver. To, to free us up from this, Lord. It's, we believe that by your grace, we can overcome this. So meet us here this morning, we pray, or this afternoon, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So that, that word for hypocrisy in verse 1 of, of chapter 12, it, 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 the, the Bible, the, the New Testament was written, of course, in Greek, and that the Greek word there is a, is a word, uh, hupokrisis, and it's where we get the English word uh, hypocrisy. And it, really what it means is, it's an idea that we're, we're applying to something, we're answering. But then it also means, and this is how Jesus is using it here, play acting. In other words, the, the idea that the actors would speak in a dialogue or they would pretend to be something and they would, well, they'd play the hypocrite. And, and, and in first century drama, because they didn't have amplification, they weren't uh, sort of mic'd up, obviously, when they were doing their plays, they would often wear these masks that would show whether uh, the character was happy or sad. It was a way to project the pretense. What was it that they were play acting? And so in a real sense, when we talk about hypocrisy, in a biblical sense, we're talking about wearing a mask. And, and, and we need to understand something. We, we don't like this idea of hypocrisy because, well, we've heard many people say, well, it's you Christians that are hypocritical. You guys are hypocrites. You're the ones who say one thing and do another thing. And, and there is some truth to that. We'll see that as we go through today's text. But also it's important for us to recognize that hypocrisy isn't a Christian issue or a religion issue. It's a human issue. Every person struggles with hypocrisy. I think one of the issues is, is that we sometimes see uh, hypocrisy is, is us saying, I, sh I, I, should we, well, I should be there, but I'm only here. But that's actually not hypocrisy. That's humanity. Hypocrisy is when we say, I should be there, and guess what? I am there, when actually probably none of us are there. In fact, it's an interesting phenomenon. No matter who a person is, no matter what their religious belief is or their lack of religious belief is, everyone has a certain standard for their life or a certain standard of the way they think the world is. And nobody reaches up even to their own standard. 
And hypocrisy is when we act like we have reached a certain standard when actually we haven't. And so, so, it's, so what we're going to look at today is, is how Jesus confronts hypocrisy. And so we pick it up in verse 37. And it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and reclined at, at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And we're going to talk about in a minute a little bit more about what a Pharisee is. But for now, just know he's a religious leader. And it's an honor for him to be invite you into his home. And so when he invites Jesus into his home, he expects Jesus to do the typical Jewish custom, which would have been to do, do some, especially for a Pharisee, would to be uh, do a ceremonial washing. And this wasn't so much about good hygiene as much as it was about we might have been defiled by somebody else and we don't want the defilement to, to come into us. And so we're going to ceremonial wash so that we can eat and be, stay clean ceremonially. And Jesus doesn't do it. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't care about cleanliness. And it wasn't that Jesus even didn't care about being clean ceremonially. It was that what Jesus was doing here is he was avoiding what we might call self-imposed religion. He was avoiding a tradition or practice that wasn't really in the scriptures. It was just something the Pharisees had kind of developed to make themselves feel like, look at me, I'm doing the holy thing. I'm doing the right thing. I'm making sure that I can't get defiled. And so Jesus avoids this. And he does it not only because he's not going to be pulled into self-imposed religion, but in a sense, he's kind of provoking a confrontation. He, he's looking for an opportunity to expose these guys in a way that's going to be good for them. So we pick it up in verse 39, and it says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things which are within, and, be, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, when Jesus says this, he said, okay, you guys are good about making the outside look good, look good but what about the inside? Interesting that he would be so strong to say to him, you're full of greed and wickedness. Greed, you want what you want for yourself. Wickedness, you'll do whatever you can do to get it. These are supposed to be people that represent God. And he's saying, this is the way you are. Now, when he says, that, um, when he says to them that, uh, uh, in verse 41, but give as alms those things that are within, almsgiving was an idea of like just giving money to the poor. It was something that the Pharisees would do with much pomp and circumstance. They would make an issue of, Oh, there's a person who's poor. Look at us. We've given money to poor. We've put money in the, in the poor coffers so that those, the poor are taken care of. Look at what we've done. And they make an issue of it. But there were also people that didn't want really to do anything with the poor. They would stay away from them. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, it's not enough for you to actually do something external. What about what's happening from the inside? Look at these, these people, no matter what they've done, no matter what's brought them to that place of poverty or need, look at these people as people that are, are made in the image of God, as people that have value, so that you have a care for them, that you see them as just, you see yourself in them, and Jesus would eventually teach, you see me in them. And, and he's challenging them, what's your heart towards these people? Because the person that is right before God has a heart that sees these people as valuable to God. He's challenging the inside. Now, this is exactly what uh, uh, the Scripture teaches throughout, uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. 
that God is interested in what, he, what goes on on the inside. Jesus would talk about this even more directly in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of us are on that list somewhere. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus is, is, is being really clear in Mark chapter 7. He's trying to be really clear with this Pharisee here at dinner. Listen, you're not going to be defiled from what comes on the outside. You're already defiled from what comes in. And that defilement shows itself in these different behaviors. See, the Pharisees have this, this focus of if we can just uh, put on a good show, if we can just get our externals right, then everything's going to be right before God. But that's what Jesus calls hypocrisy. And Jesus is not duped by hypocrisy. He sees past behaviors and he looks right into our hearts. And so what does he do with this? He exposes it. Now from verses 42 to verse uh, uh, 50 to verse 52 or 54 actually, sorry. What we're going to see is Jesus giving what are, are called the six woes. He gives three woes to the Pharisees, three woes to the lawyers. Now, when, when the Bible talks about a woe, when Jesus says, woe to you, this is not a declaration of anger. He's not wagging his finger, woe to you, like he's angry. This is, a, this is a, an explanation of grief. This, this is kind of what we would say to a wayward child. If you had a teenage child that was getting into some sort of chemical addiction, you'd say, what are you doing? Do you understand the destruction that that's going to bring to your life? And so there might be a, a sense of exasperation in there, but really what there is is a grief and a desperation because you know the direction that they're going to go is going to be bring them ruin. This is the explanation of woe to you when Jesus says woe to you. And so when he brings these three woes to the Pharisees, we need to understand, first of all, who these Pharisees were. Religious leaders, yes, but the, we need to know a little bit about their history. The Pharisees, the, the, actually the name or the title Pharisee comes from a word that means to be a separatist. And their history is just a, a few hundred years before, or a couple hundred years before Jesus was on the scene, uh, Israel's under bondage of the Greek Empire, and there was someone who went into their temple, defiles the, their temple, and there was a revolt against the Greeks. There was a, a religious family, a priestly family called the Maccabees. Some of you guys may have heard of these guys before. And they, re, they rebel against this. And in part of that revolt, basically, they, 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 they gain back the worship uh, the, the right worship of God in the temple. But also what happens is they, they're, they're seen in sort of that culture as these, like these heroes and the, these guys who are, who are willing to, to, to be pure, keep the, the faith of Israel pure. And so they kept that reputation by separating themselves by anything they saw that would defile. As the Greeks tried to defile their temple, they're saying we're not going to allow any defilement. So they kind of kept that pace. So in one sense, they had a history and a tradition of being really well respected. Now, there's, there is some indication that maybe by the time Jesus comes on the scene, people are starting to think, are these guys for real? They seem to be a bit greedy and a bit covetousness, a bit covetous. But, but still, they had this tradition. So we tend to look at Pharisees and we think, boo, they're all bad if we've been around church at all. But actually, the first century Christians, or first century, sorry, uh, uh, believers, the Jews, Jewish people, wouldn't have saw the Pharisees as bad. They would have saw the Pharisees as 
holier than we can be. That's what they would have seen him as. And so when he begins to kind of call them out on things, this is a big deal. So how does he do it? What are the woes he pronounces them? Look at verse 42. He says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things ought to have been done without neglecting the others. So, so these Pharisees, one of the things that they would try to do is, in want, wanting to avoid any kind of defilement, they wanted to make sure that they, they could not be accused of, not, of missing any law. So because the Old Testament law commanded God's people to tithe, give the first 10% uh, to, to, um, of their increase to, to, the, to the temple and to, to God for the use that God had for it, they would make sure they tithe everything. So if they had like a spice garden, you know, they're growing some coriander there or some mint, they'd go, oh, look at that. That grew an inch. It was 10 inches, now it's 11. Cut off that one inch. Oh, don't go too far. Don't go too high. Make sure you get just the exact 10% and tie that bit to the temple. They were meticulous about doing everything just exactly right. And Jesus isn't saying you're bad for doing that. He's saying that's a minor thing. What about the major things? What about justice? What about the fact that God says, when God talks about justice in the scriptures, he's not just talking about, in fact, this is one of the mistakes that we make when we talk about justice. We tend to see justice as people getting their due. You've done bad, there needs to be justice, bad needs to happen to you. There needs to be some sort of a punishment. That's part of it. Part of justice is, is you know, consequences for our actions. That's part of it. But justice is more than that. Justice is also about God saying, here's how things ought to be. And, and so justice is about us pursuing what God says is right or just, which includes, obviously, taking care of the poor. And so you're saying, okay, look, you, you, you give alms kind of outwardly, but what about justice? What about taking care of things that are just wrong? What about pursuing making those things right? And what about the love of God? You, you, you do all these things because you're wanting God to, you wanted to show how righteous you are before God. But what about simply just loving God or showing the love of God? Now, here's what's interesting. Here they are, they're majoring on minors, but what does Jesus do? Jesus majors on love and justice. And do you know where we see this best exemplified? At the cross. Because at the cross, God was dealing with punishment that was meant to be ours. God was uh, making right that which was, had been done wrong. But also, you know what's happening there? God's demonstrating his love for us. He's demonstrating his love for us. Now, this is what we need to understand, is that what, what Jesus does is directly opposite to what the Pharisees do. Look at verse 43. In verse 43, it says, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, what these guys really loved was the praise of men. They loved that when someone would say, Rabbi so-and-so, or, oh, it's so good to see you, sir, and, um, you know, uh, that, oh, you're so holy and we want to respect you. Please, please, here, take the best seat at church, at synagogue. Please, we want you to have this. They loved it. They reveled in it. But Jesus, on the other hand, he wasn't so concerned if people honored uh, or, or people were, were praising him. He was concerned about the Father's praise. What was pleasing to the Father? What brought the Father glory? That's how he lived his life. Then look at verse 44. Woe to you, he says, 
For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, obviously, in a, in a sort of a Jewish thinking, you would be ceremonially unclean if you touched anything dead or anything that was holding something dead. You would be unclean. And so you'd have to kind of do a new sacrifice and wait a period of time before you could come back to the temple. And so if you were unclean uh, and you didn't know it, you could, well, you, you could be in big trouble ceremonially. And he's basically saying, you guys are like unmarked graves. You're like that which defiles people and they don't even know they're being defiled, and you don't even know that you're defiling them. This is what you're like. And here's what's interesting, because what do we see about Jesus? Where these guys are unaware of their own defilement of others, Jesus was intentional about making people clean. That's why he came. That's why he died for us, was so that we could be cleansed. Now, in these warnings, they all get summed up in something that Jesus said in, in, or something that we read uh, in John chapter 12. Because, because here's the thing about these Pharisees, and we'll see even in a minute about some of these lawyers, that some of these guys who, who, who were sort of God-fearers, who thought that they were going to be right with God by being, making sure they had all the externals right, some of these guys did come to believe that Jesus was God's chosen king. But what do we read in John chapter 12? Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, as the religious authorities, believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Think about this. The, there were people that actually saw, yes, Jesus must be God's chosen king, but I'm not going to tell anybody I believe that because I want to make sure my reputation with this other group of people is still good. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about how easy it is for us to do. Oh, I'll say I believe in Jesus when I'm around Christians, but I don't want to say it around my work colleagues because they're going to think I'm nuts. If I profess my faith, they're going to think I'm crazy. I, I, and what they think about me is more important than what Jesus thinks about me. That's in essence what these guys were doing. Can you see why Jesus would expose this? So once he exposes the Pharisees with, these, with their three warnings, what happens next in verse 45? It says, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, the lawyers, if the Pharisees were uh, the, separatists, they were the ones that were trying to, to show that they're living a holy life. The, the, the lawyers, where they were kind of like the theologians, maybe you might say theologians slash pastors, they were the ones that would, would have kind of said, here's what the law says, here's how we're supposed to live it. And then the Pharisees would say, okay, great, we'll live it out, and we'll tell these people this is how it's supposed to work, okay? So these guys were in tandem. So they knew if you're accusing the Pharisees, you're accusing us as well. And Jesus doesn't hold back with these guys either. Look at verse 45. He says, uh, uh, verse 46, he says, uh, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. I, I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus is saying, basically, you with all the, the rules that you pile upon, the laws that you pile upon, the precepts, all these things that you keep doing, making things harder and harder for people religiously, you pile them up, and then when they go, we can't do it, we help us. Like, no, sorry, you're on your own. You overburden people with all your religious rules and regulations. And that's just the direct opposite of what Jesus did. 
Jesus bears the loads of the overburdened. Do, do you remember what, um, uh, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11? He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He didn't say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll put another thing on your back. He doesn't say that. He says, come, I'll give you rest. I'll, I'll take my yoke upon me. In other words, let me help you pull this load. This is what the Lord does. Can you see again why Jesus would be so harsh against these guys? And then verses 47 to 51, this is a long section with a lot of complex things in there. But I want you to understand, I want you to just kind of follow with me as I read this, and I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's now connecting these Pharisees and these lawyers with all of the people that had been unfaithful in Israel. All those leaders, all those people that were meant to be God's covenant people, who didn't want to listen to what God actually said, what God was doing in their generations. Okay, so look at that. Verse, uh, yeah, where am I? Lost my place. <laughs> yeah, verse, there it is. Sorry. Um, uh, verse uh, 47. He says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, it's important to understand a couple of things. One, when he says the blood of Abel to Zechariah, that's kind of like saying anyone who ever died, any prophet or any righteous person who ever died at the hands of those who are of Israel, who were religious people. All those people is who I'm talking about. I'm now lumping you guys together with those people. Now, Abel, if you remember that story from Genesis, back to Genesis chapter 4, Abel was killed by his brother Cain. He was the first person to die because he did what was right and Cain didn't like because God says, you're not doing what's right. So he got angry and he kills Abel. Zechariah, the priest, in the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible is 2 Chronicles, and he's the last person to be killed for, again, a righteous reason. He's doing what God would have him do, and they don't like what he's doing, so what do they do? They kill him. They stone him to death. And so what, what Jesus is doing here, he's saying all those, those times in our history of Israel, of Israel all those times when, when God's prophets were killed, when those who were declaring what God was saying to them, trying to bring them back to himself, and you rejected it and you got so angry that you actually killed these people, guess what? You're doing the same thing right now. That's what he's saying. It's pretty heavy. And, and he's wanting them to see this is, this is the hypocrisy of you. you. You think you're doing right by God, but you're, you're rejecting even wanting to slay the innocent of those who are actually trying to bring you the words of salvation. This is what you're doing. Now, when he says here, this generation, he says that phrase twice. This is probably a reference to what happens to this group of Israelites, the people that would have heard Jesus preach, uh, just a few years after Jesus preached. So maybe uh, 30, 40 years after Jesus preached, we know that, that, that Jerusalem fell. It was completely collapsed and all the Jews were scattered. It was seen as a judgment of God that Jesus warned about. And so it's, just, it's as if he's saying, you know what, guys? 
you keep doing this. You in Israel, you keep doing this. I keep sending you prophets. I keep sending you uh, wise men. I keep trying to warn you of your ways. I keep trying to bring you back in the covenant with me. And you keep slaying the innocent. So guess what? Eventually it's going to be no more. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't still have a plan for, for Israel as a nation. That's a completely different topic that we're not going to get into today. But it, what it does mean is Jesus is saying here, it's, it's, there's a time when God says no more. And this is why Jesus is being so firm. This is why he's saying these woes to them. But there's another one. Look at verse 52. He says, Woe to you lawyers, if you have taken away, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did, not, and you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So, so what's the key of knowledge that they've taken away? Well, these are Pharisees. These are those who pride themselves on keeping the law. These are lawyers. These are those who are supposed to know the law of God. But they've taken it away in this sense. They've twisted it and they've misused it so it no longer does what the law was meant to do. It's no longer a key that opens our hearts. <coughs> what Jesus does with the law, and we know this because we see this in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, like Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I'm, I'm not going to take away anything from the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Every jaw and tittle of the law, every bout of the law, I'm going to fulfill it. He takes the law and he exalts the law and he actually takes the application of it beyond just a here's what you do externally but to here's what should happen in your hearts. Here's what the law should be doing in your hearts, what it should be exposing in your hearts. And he uses the law to turn the key on people's hearts so they know that they need what only God can provide. This is how the Apostle Paul explained it. Try to follow me with this. It says, sorry, Galatians 4. It's actually Galatians chapter 3, but you can read the whole chapter later, Galatians chapter 3. But look what Paul writes. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, Paul goes back to the law. It is written. He goes back to what the Pharisees and the lawyers would, would have thought, this is the standard. He goes back there and says, what does it say? If you don't fill, fulfill at all, you're under a curse. If you ignore any part of it, you're under a curse. He goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, it goes back to the, to the law to say, listen, here's what happens. There's a curse. When, was Jesus, when did Jesus become this curse? At the cross, when he hung on the tree. So then it says, the law was our guardian until Christ, in order that we might be justified, not by keeping the law, but by faith. See, the purpose of God's law was to show God's people that they have to trust God, not themselves. So when they obeyed the law, they were obeying the law by faith. Lord, we can't be right with you, so we're going to do the sacrifices you, you, you request. Lord, we don't know what it looks like to love our neighbor, so we're going to follow what your law says about what it looks like to love our neighbor. Lord, we, we don't have what it takes to be faithful to you, so we're going to trust that what you've done is show yourself faithful to us. But what did the Pharisees and the lawyers do in their hypocrisy? They took that law and they twisted it so it no longer opened people's hearts for their need for God. It made people feel like, I can show God he needs me. I can do what it takes. I can do enough. 
Now, there's one more thing about this, about how Jesus exposes hypocrisy, because we see in the response of the Pharisees and the lawyers the results of not heeding these woes and these warnings, the results of not dealing with hypocrisy in their own lives. In verse 53, it says, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things and lie in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, this is interesting because what does it say? It says they're, they're pressing him hard. The idea here is that they're coming to him and they're questioning him. What about this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And they're kind of pressing him, trying to see if he'll give the right answers so that if he gives the wrong answer, they're going to say, Aha! <coughs> You're not orthodox. You're not right. In fact, when it uses the phrases there, they're lying in wait for him to catch him. Those are hunting phrases. They see Jesus as prey to be chased down. In this sense, he's the fox, they're the hounds. That's what, this is how they're treating him. Why? Why are they doing this? They're doing this because they don't want to receive his exposure. They don't want to admit that they actually are being hypocrites. They're putting on a religious facade instead of actually humbling themselves before God. When I was doing youth work, in the States, back in the 90s, they, they, there was, they had these cheesy bracelets that Christian kids used to wear that would say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Some of you guys might be, remember some of this, right? What would Jesus do? And so uh, the Christian bookstore that happened to, to be uh, run by people that went to our church, I was talking to some of the employees, and they say to me, man, we have a real problem with those WWJD bracelets because they keep getting stolen. Now think about this. What would Jesus do bracelets are getting stolen, <laughs> right? And so I thought, that's nuts. And I remember asking the lady who was telling me about this, how can, did he get caught? Oh, yeah, we've caught some of the kids. Well, how do they justify, you know, stealing what would Jesus do bracelets? And, and they said, well, because they don't see them as saying, what would Jesus do? These kids were kids that thought that Christians were ridiculous, and they stole them because they would say, it stands for, we want Jesus dead. Now, now, here's the thing about this, is that as shocking as that sounds, it's like, wow, how, well, who would do that? What those young kids were doing was more honest about their hearts are than many people that sit in church. Because many times we sit in church wishing God wasn't real, wishing Jesus wasn't who he revealed himself to be, because then we could do what we want to do. But we still come to church, put on a pretty face, are we still kind of have the relationship and act like everything's fine? Why? Because like the Pharisees and the lawyers, we have this human problem of being hypocrites. We, we hide behind religious masks. And it's not just Christians who do this. Again, this is a human problem. Everyone does this. We don't want to be seen as those that have bad thoughts. We don't want to be seen as those who, who have anything but, oh, we think Jesus is wonderful. But there's times when we don't think that, and rather than being honest and turning to God and saying, God, forgive me and change me, what do we do? We put on a mask. We try harder. And we never deal with our hearts. We never deal with our hearts. So this is the context when, in which we see what happens in chapter 12, where Jesus gives them the warning about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Look at it again, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, In the meantime, 
When so many thousands of people had gathered together and they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware the love of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, I want you to get this picture, okay? Jesus has been doing his ministry as he shows himself to be God's chosen king. The religious leaders don't like it. In their hypocrisy, they want to chase him down. They want to see him destroyed. In fact, this kind of hunting metaphor we're going to see all throughout the rest of of loose gospel, where they are literally pursuing him, trying to catch him so they can, they can have him destroyed. And, and, and so what's that? When this is happening, at the same time that these religious leaders are starting to be suspect of Jesus and want to see Jesus' ministry ended, at the same time, he's still pretty popular. Thousands upon thousands of people still want to hear the Jewish rabbi from Galilee preach. They want to see him do miracles. And so as they crowd around, I imagine Jesus looking at his disciples, the 12 disciples specifically, but maybe even the 70, as they're kind of in awe of this huge crowd that's coming to hear their rabbi teach. And so he leans over to them and he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They love the praise of men, don't love the praise of men. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't be like them. Now, one of the things that he really, is, is why he's using strong language when he says beware, is because he, Jesus knew, and he calls it leaven for a reason, that leaven is like yeast, just a little bit of yeast in some bread dough makes that puff up really big, it makes it nice and soft, doesn't it? The idea of, of leaven in the, in the scripture is not always necessarily evil, but always strongly influential, often evil. And the idea is that just a little bit of it can leaven an entire loaf. Now remember, Luke is volume one. The book of Acts is volume two of, of really a two-volume set, Luke and Acts, that Luke wrote. And in the book of Acts chapter five, you can turn at that later and look at it. There's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. You guys remember this story? It's at a time when the, the first Jesus followers, they're maybe a, a decade into this Jesus stuff. It's really early on. And they're all expecting Jesus to come back anytime to Jerusalem. And so many of these Jesus followers were Jews who had actually even come to Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost for that, fe that festival. They hear the gospel, they get saved, and more and more get saved, and they're staying in this area of Jerusalem, not going back to their home nations. Why? Because they think Jesus is going to come back anytime. But of course, they start to run out of money. So what happens? G Christians being generous people, they start giving all their money into one pot and making sure everybody has what they need. That's what they're doing. Now, what happens, of course, is that in, in Acts chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira do a similar thing. Ananias brings his gift and acts like, yes, we've sold some property, and hey, here's the proceeds. Praise God, we can't wait for Jesus to come back, and, and gives it there. And God gives Peter, the apostle Peter, what we might call a word of knowledge. That is, he knows something about Ananias' situation and behavior that he couldn't know naturally. It was supernaturally revealed to him. And so he says to Ananias, uh, he, he, he says, is this indeed basically all that you've sold the, the property for? And he says, when the property was yours, wasn't it yours to keep? And when you sold it, weren't the proceeds yours to keep? In other words, no one was forcing you to do this. 
Because what Ananias had actually done is not given all that he said he had given, he gave just a portion of it. And Peter's not complaining he didn't give it all. Peter's complaining because he's acting like he gave it all. And Peter says to him, you've not lied to man, but to God. And he drops dead. Ananias drops dead. Then a couple of, uh, sometime later, what happens a few hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in, holding the same story. Oh, yes, we sold the house and or property. And we gave to the church because, well, we're so, we want Jesus to come back. We're so excited. And Peter says, are you sure that's your story, basically? And when she doesn't deny it, she drops dead. And we hear the story and we think, God, it's horrible. I, that sounds like an Old Testament story, not a New Testament story. Why would God do this? Listen, now, in my opinion, Ananias and Sapphira could have still been real believers who God was simply chastening unto death. In other words, this wasn't like they were judged forever, they didn't have a chance really to repent. Now, this could have been just a chastening unto death. That's my opinion. You don't have to agree with me with that. But here's also what God's doing out of his mercy to us. Out of his mercy to us, he's trying to show us hypocrisy kills. Acting like you're doing something you're not really doing, acting like you believe something you don't really believe, acting like you're in a place you're not really in, kills. It kills our witness. It kills our joy. It's a plague. And so when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, he's saying, listen, man, be careful with this stuff because just a little bit of wanting to hear the praise of men can cause all kinds of problems. Just a little bit of, of adding burdens to people can really bring a lot of destruction. It just takes a little bit of hypocrisy to cause some serious problems. But more than that, listen, what he says in verses 2 and 3 is important because if we read this, we tend to, maybe our first impression is to think Jesus is just trying to say you're going to get caught, but there's something more to it than this. Listen, in verse 2, Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard on the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. It's like Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, you need to know that everything you do is always seen by God. Every thought, every secret motive, every blasphemous idea, all those things are seen by God. You can't hide those things. And it's funny because we hear this and all we do is we feel like, ah, I want to go hide. But do you realize Jesus is saying this to them, saying, listen, don't you realize that all these things are seen by your heavenly Father and he loves you still? That's why I'm here, he said. This is why God sent Jesus. What did you say, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, the world full of these hypocrites, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe would not perish from that hypocrisy, but have everlasting life. He's saying, don't you know that you are, listen, always seen and yet always loved. Do you realize this? See, here's the thing. Jesus isn't duped by hypocrisy and Jesus will expose our hypocrisy, but we as his followers, we can overcome hypocrisy. Why? Because we don't have anything left to hide. Everything that we're guilty of, have been guilty of in the past, are guilty of right now, and even will be guilty of in the future, has already been paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. 
We have already been given a perfect righteousness in Christ. We've already been accepted in Christ. So hiding is foolish. It's pointless. It only brings death. The reason Jesus is saying woe to you to the Pharisees and woe to you to the lawyers and he would say woe to you to us and our hypocrisy is because he's saying why would you be a hypocrite when you can know you're fully known and fully loved? See, this is what it is. We, are, we want to be fully known or fully loved, but here's the problem. We think if people really know us as we are, they won't want much to do with us. You know, and that's probably true. But when we know that we have the love of God, even though that we fall so short of that, even though we are so hypocritical, even though we try to have all different kinds of masks for all different kinds of people, even though that's the case, when we know we're loved by God, guess what that enables us to do? To start being honest about the junk in our lives, about the bad thoughts, about the frustrations, about the unbelief. And, and here's the thing we need to understand as well. When Jesus says this, he's not saying this so that we can just kind of go, well, okay, I'm a horrible person. He's not wanting to leave us in our hypocrisy. He wants to change us. L listen to how the author of Hebrews says this. Listen, the author of Hebrews writes, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then... Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He has faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there, will, there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. When do we need grace most? When we're being hypocrites. When we're so afraid of our own brokenness or we're so wanting the praise of men or we're so, so much more concerned about how people view us than how God views us, that's when we are so desperate for his grace. So how do we respond to this? Hypocrisy is, as we saw, literally play-acting. Put it on a roll. Where are you play-acting? Do you find yourself acting like a Christian in front of Christians, acting like you're not a Christian in front of non-Christians? Do you find yourself, listen, do you find yourself telling people everything's wonderful, throwing out a lot of praise God's, he's got us, and never letting anybody know where your struggles are? Are, are? are you in a place where you're acting a certain way because you're so afraid that if God actually knew, or, or if people actually knew what you'd like, you'd be rejected? Let me ask you, how does that play acting keep you from receiving grace? When you act that way, are you receiving the grace of God that's in Christ? Or are you assuming it's not good enough? What about showing the grace of God? Because you know what happens? We can get so good at our play acting, we can convince ourselves that we're better than we actually are. And when we do that, you know what happens? We end up being harsh 
towards others. Or maybe we're so wanting to show that we, we really hate sin and we stand up against unrighteousness and so we'll be harsh about something that actually the truth be known in our hearts we do the same thing. Jesus is saying woe to us because he wants us to be delivered from us. He's given us grace. Consider doing this. Consider telling a trusted Christian friend the, thing that, the area that you struggle with most and praying with them. Saying to them, I really struggle with this. I really, this is where I, I, I wrestle with, uh, where, where I fall into sin. This is an area where I act like I do this, but I actually don't do this. And I really need prayer for this because I, got, I know that God wants to bring me past this. My friend Rob Dingman likes to say, fungus grows in the dark. <laughs> and many of us have spiritual athlete's foot. We're full of fungus because we hide everything. And the Lord's saying, you don't need to hide. Bring it to the light. Bring it to the light. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't let that thing, don't let that influence you. See, what, what God wants us to believe is Christ's work is sufficient for our past sins. And it is sufficient for our future sins, but it's also sufficient for our present sins. See, God's grace isn't just about dealing with our past or giving us hope for the future. God's grace is about bringing real change to our hearts now. This is why he exposes hypocrisy. We're going to remember the Lord at his table. We're going to have communion together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being willing to expose hypocrisy. Lord, it's easy for us to be blinded by our own hypocrisy, to think that we're, if we fooled ourselves, we're fooling others, but we can never fool you, Lord. And yet, Lord, you love us enough to call us to yourself. And I just, I marvel, Lord, that you, you ate with the Pharisees, that you communed with them, Lord, that you even, we even saw some of them come to faith to you. And after your death and resurrection, even begin to follow you, like Nicodemus. Lord, we thank you, God, that there's no one beyond your reach, no matter how deluded we are about our own righteousness, you're able to show us it's not us, it's you. We need you to save us. Father, we thank you that you do that. And we thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, there's no leaven in this wafer because it's sinless. Because you were sinless. This juice is crushed grape because you were crushed, Lord Jesus. And you did this, Lord, to not just forgive us of our hypocrisy, but to deliver us from it. And so, Lord, we, we believe, and we thank you for doing that. And we do this now in remembrance of you. Let's partake.
Amen. Amen. I really apologize for these cups. You at home, you have your own grape juice and crackers. You're much in a better place than we are. These cups are really difficult. <laughs> Take your time. Roy, why don't you play a bit more, sorry, while we're just waiting for, for this. Let's just close in prayer. Father, thank you so much uh, for all that you've done for us. And Lord, even with our fumbling with uh, cups, Lord, you, um, you're still worthy to be remembered and trusted. Thank you that what you've done for us is perfect. And Lord, we can trust you to finish what you've started in us as well. Bless us, we pray this week. We, we pray you'd help us to walk before you humbly. Lord, that we would be those that are, are honest and real about our shortcomings, about our needs. Lord, would you remove all masks and would we stand before you knowing that it's only in Christ that we're made right. Bless us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. <laughs>